0: Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for your word and for the ways that you speak to us even now. Give us ears to listen and hearts to be transformed that we might go into the world living your love more deeply and more fully. Amen. I thought I would start this morning with a cheery question. If you were to sit down and write your own obituary, what would you include? Now, I know this isn't a very exciting topic, particularly as anytime we discuss our own mortality or even acknowledge that yes, we might one day die, it's, it isn't, it's not something we like to talk about. I remember being told one time in a college journalism class where we were writing obituaries that you can write whatever facts seem appropriate into an obituary. You have to make some decisions and you might even get some of the details wrong, but the one thing you can never do is spell the person's name wrong. I've never forgotten that even as as I've long forgotten all those other elements we were told to include, But, but what would you include if you were to write your own? Now, I had another assignment uh, that was an even shorter exercise, one that I was assigned in the seventh grade, and we had to write our own epitaph for our tombstone. I don't remember how many words we could use or how many characters, but we were encouraged, of course, to keep it short. And I remember I loved this exercise at the time. I wasn't really thinking about death, I was more thinking about how I would live my life going forward, how I'd live into the reality of that tombstone. Who would I seek to be? How would I want to be remembered? I don't know why I thought of it that way though. The the assignment at the time was to write our epitaph as though our life had ended, not to write the ideal or hopeful epitaph But I'm wondering now whether there's much of a difference between the two. If we're writing our own story, as long as we're still alive, that story is continuing. It isn't written until we close our eyes and breathe our last. And even then, our story continues, right? It continues in the form of the relationships we've had, the people with whom we've interacted, and so that trajectory of our lives, that, that trajectory and impact keeps having ripples outward, ripples that intersect with other people's ripples, ripples that continue to impact. And this isn't just linked to us at the end of our lives. Obviously, our actions while we're alive have these similar ongoing impacts on other people. Our actions affect those around us. Our actions, our ideals, our integrity, all of the things that make up our interactions with others shape how we will impact the world around us. And those same interactions will shape how others perceive not just us, but the things or the ideals with which we are associated. If we're a sports fan and we behave in a certain way wearing the stripes and colors of our team, we in that instant represent the fan community of that team. Now I'm being careful here not to pick any teams in particular, but we all know that there are several teams in various sports or various cities that have reputations that have been forged over the years. And for better or worse, we generalize our understandings of of these teams but also other groups by our interactions with even just an individual. Now I could preach many sermons on the evils that come out of this and the ways that it has led to significant societal problems like racism and bias, but but that's not where I wanna go this morning. Rather, I'm actually thinking about it from the positive end, the way that ones who identify with a certain group represent that group. And, And in particular, the way that Christians, people who identify themselves, whether culturally or actually religious in active faith, People identify as Christians represent Christ today. Just like fans of a sports team, when we identify as a member of a, a church or as someone who goes to church, our actions, our lives reflect more than just us. They reflect the church. They, they reflect Jesus. I asked this question to, uh, to a friend of mine this week. What aroma of Christ do we want to introduce to the world? what is the aroma of Christ? I remember a friend telling me once, and I, and I may have shared this with you before, that she and her husband, they, they told me that they stopped going to church and, and certainly didn't tell people that they had gone to church because they didn't want people to think that they were the type of Christians that many people today were associating with Christians. Even just recently, when self-professed Christians were attacking the Capitol in January and doing so in the name of Jesus, my goodness, the aroma they were wafting into the world stunk. And so what is this aroma that we seek to have? What are the ripples that we want to send into the world and why? I even often try to ask this question here at church. How do we as a community give off the loving, hospitable aroma of Christ to those who find their way onto our campus? Perhaps to enjoy the lawn or learn to ride a bike in the parking lot, especially, especially how do we do this when at the same time, we want to gather outside and have outdoor meetings and things? How do we as a church ensure that we're seeing ourselves not as users of an exclusive location, but as stewards of a place of sanctuary for all people? Because in part of how it represents us. And you see the, the answer, it's somewhat obvious to me. But it takes some intentionality as we remember that we're walking, when we're walking or driving onto this campus, we're representing not just ourselves individually, but the church and how others will perceive the church. And and even more importantly, you may be the only image, the only aroma of Christ that those people experience. I actually saw this in action just last night as a young family came onto our campus and was playing uh, on the campus, a safe environment for them to have an evening of getting the wiggles out before bedtime. While at the same time, there was a group of PCWS folks gathered for a discussion about race right here, sharing. Was the family a distraction? Probably. But the aroma of Christ meant being welcoming to them, and they did just that. You see, the ways that we interact with others, they may be the only reflection of God that person experiences. I remember one time I was utterly shocked when I learned that someone I knew from the business world was not just a churchgoer, but a leader in their church. These seemed incompatible. Their actions, their treatment of others, their reputation for being ruthless and uncharitable, not just to people with whom they were opposed, but with people who worked with them. This, This gave an aroma that was so far from Christ's aroma that it seemed impossible to me that they would be a faithful follower of Christ. Now, I don't claim to know their heart or their relationship with God or their understanding of God. But what I know is that I always hoped that other people wouldn't know that this person was a professed Christian because I didn't want the aroma, this false aroma of Christ to push them away. Friends, what a strange power we possess as individuals, as parents, as friends, as co-workers, indeed as a church. The early Christians discovered this power quickly. They were standing up to those who actually had the power, the governmental power, especially those who controlled the religious rules of the day. Often we get confused when we read, especially in books like Acts, which is really a continuation of Luke's gospel, when we read about those who were fighting against those early followers of Jesus. In our texts, most of the time when we read about the actions of of what are referred to as the Jewish people, it was usually really a small group of people, the people with power, people called Sadducees who were against really any form of religion that believed in an afterlife or of God's involvement in human action in any way. And these folks had the power because they knew to make deals with the government, the foreign government, the occupying government. And so they had these deals that would protect their power, okay? And power over others, especially those who were religious. And after this group worked with the government to squash the uprising of Jesus by killing him, they thought things were stopped. They thought they had cut it off. So you can imagine in the weeks, months, years following the resurrection and, and even, even more so this, this rapid growth of the church that occurred, you can imagine they grew increasingly angry. Our first reading that Rogers read for us from Acts comes right on the heels of a dramatic scene in the chapter before in Acts chapter three, where Peter and John are healing people in the name of Jesus. They're raising people from the dead. Now, many people begin to follow them. Our text says about 5,000 people. And it it says that this is the number of men and does not include the number of women and children. So we can imagine how significant this number was. Many more than that likely have begun to follow this new way. And the Sadducees are not happy. They arrest Peter and John. And the next day they put them on trial. And this is what is happening in that text that Rogers read. The question they are asked is this, by what power or by what name did you do this? Did you do all this, this this healing, this raising people from the dead? Now, why is this question so important? Why does it matter? There are a couple of reasons for this. One is very practical, political in fact. The question is one of authority and one of blame. Who's your boss? How did you do this? And you see, Peter's answer is that they've done this in the name of Jesus. And these fearful men with power, they've already killed Jesus. The the one that's being blamed for these acts of love, the, the one who's under authority, these acts of revolutionary change are taking place, these acts of kindness, compassion, and these acts of being delivered from oppression toward being blessed, these actions are being done in the name of the one that you not only rejected, but the one that you tried to silence with death the resurrected one who continues to live because the followers of the resurrected one take no credit for their own acts, but confess and acknowledge that they are acting, they are following, they are living the love of Jesus. This is revolutionary. This is continued revolution, really. And this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. It means, it means choosing to be people who seek to follow Christ's commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. Our second scripture lesson this morning is from 1 John. This is our third of four weeks in this short book of the Bible, a letter written to early Christians who were still figuring it out, figuring out what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And I'm so thankful that they had trouble figuring it out because it gives us encouragement as well, as we try to figure it out. In the verse right before the reading that Rogers read, the author writes, we know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us. In all that John is talking about, John is pointing us to Jesus immediately, and reminding us, first of all, that the invitation to follow Jesus, the invitation to live into our identity as God's beloved is an invitation to know and follow the one who has given all that could be given. But the writer doesn't stop there. He then instructs us that we too should be willing to give of ourselves. Thirsting for God's love in our lives, John instructs us that we are to love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. He asks a difficult and direct question. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? And, and that's when he writes that, that phrase that I read before, little children, let us love not in word or speech but in truth and action. This really is a text about obedience. We don't tend to like that word very much, but it is about obedience to this law that was so central to Christ's teachings, especially in the final days and hours with his disciples. The the law that is to guide how we live, it's the law of love, The, the, the law that we perhaps need to be reminded of. Love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. Love that sees others and spreads an aroma of Christ. Love like Peter and John and those other disciples of Jesus who were willing to lay down their lives to love. This isn't just following, it is obedience. Obedience to love in the name of Jesus Christ, not in our name, not in the name of our church, in the name of Jesus, to God be the glory, not you or me. Jesus acts of love and especially the act of ultimate love on the cross and in the empty tomb becomes the foundation for how we live our lives in response. It brings purpose to our acts of love and it guides our hopes and it inspires our thinking and our belief. And it is Christ's love for humanity, God's love for humanity, that continues to guide us even now. Guides us in our relationships with one another, with the world around us, with the strangers in our midst, and with those throughout the world. God's story is is certainly a story of the past, for sure. But it's also a story that continues today in our lives as we seek to know and follow Christ. In verse 23, John writes that this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Belief and action. And these two aren't separate, are they? Peter and John in our Acts texts are able to bring transforming love in the world, not because of themselves, but because of the one in whom they believe. Belief and action. If Christ's actions were so revolutionary that they changed the course of human existence. And if and if we profess belief in Christ, then we too are called to seek to understand who this is that we follow. And and that's why we study scripture and, and why we seek to draw closer to the divine through prayer, through reflection, through meditation. All of this, even as we seek to love others, to know others, to hear the stories of others. Belief and action. And sometimes, friends, the actions are the starting point. Sometimes it is easier to love our way into believing than it is to believe our way into loving. In our Acts text, when Peter is talking to the Sadducees, responding to their questions, He quotes from Psalm 118 when he says that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, which God has made the cornerstone. It's resurrection, life where there was no more. The rejected one has become the one who matters, the one who is blessed, the one upon whom and with whom we are all empowered to live and love. When we align ourselves with God, when we abide, when we stay, remain with God, follow God, when we worship God and seek the mysterious wonder of following God, our aroma, the aroma of Christ lives out in our faith, in our lives, belief, and action. Limping toward becoming the ones that God designed us to be toward becoming the ones that God knows us to be already. The ones that God knows us to be already. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.